Books I Love is a space dedicated to books I've recently read and loved, books that made me wish to strike up a conversation with the author and ask them questions all about the book and their experience of writing it. My name is Janice Barriott and I'm a writer and storyteller. And that was Vincent, also known as Kitty, who will more than occasionally make his opinions known about the books he likes to fall asleep on. We are your hosts. Thank you so much for joining us. Today on our very first episode, we have a very special guest, someone who I've long admired for her writing across genres, fantasy, journalistic nonfiction, book columns, essays, Instagram posts, and now crime fiction. Nilanjana Roy is a writer who famously, as a child, ate books. Then she grew up, though I suspect she still sneaks a nibble or two out of a page now and then. She's here to talk about her most recent novel, Black River. Black River is set in and around the edges of Delhi, and though it's framed as a fast-paced, gritty, grimy police procedural, it becomes so much more than that in its meditations on justice, on the natural world, on memory, family, and friendship. The novel begins with two murders, that of a young woman and a young child, and through this rather violent portal, we enter the world of Chand, a farmer in the fictional village of Titharpur, his friends Rabia and Khalid, who once lived with him on the banks of the Yamuna in Delhi, Ombir, the rough, tough local policeman with a gentle heart, and many unforgettable others. Kiran Desai has called Black River a riveting murder mystery, a psychological thriller, a magnificent work of literary fiction. Reading this novel, she says, is like holding a prayer in one's hands. Nilanjana, welcome. What a pleasure to have you here. Janice, I'm so glad that you're doing this series of conversations and you know, deeply touched and honoured to be on your show. I was just thinking as you were reading out uh, Kiran's very kind words that there's an un- unexpected thread of generosity connecting people in the book's world, you know, for all the other stuff. There is, and we're here to celebrate that generosity. What Kiran Desai's words also make clear is that Black River is happily unclassifiable. It's crime fiction, literary fiction, all these and more. And I was thinking how the title also lends itself to this unclassifiability. It works in these wonderfully allegorical ways. Tell me, Nilanjana, do titles come easy to you? (laughs) That's such a great question because, you know, that gets to the heart of uh, one of the biggest problems in writing. No, it doesn't come easily. You walk through a dozen terrible titles. And I think one of the reasons why it's so hard is because the title actually finds itself only after the book is done. And uh, when I finished, I was floating around. I didn't I didn't really know what to call it. You know, it starts with something that um, is savage, but also commonplace, unfortunately. The murder of a young girl, unremarkable in itself. But the absence, you know, that she leaves behind will echo for years and you can feel that right from the start in the heart of her parent. And uh, Black River was just the title of a chapter which had to do with the Yamuna girls. And it was David Godwin's wife, Heather Godwin, 
who just said, that's the title you need. Would you, do you think you'd like that? Titles are mysterious, I think. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's a lucky author who starts off with the title and then builds the book around it. But they're almost as mysterious as the book itself. I don't think any of us, honestly, uh, those of us who are working with highly creative literary fiction, I don't think any of us fully understand uh, how the imagination works. You know, to me, this book, as well as others, and the next one I'm working on, it feels gifted from a place beyond um, anything that I can really perceive or take credit for. And it feels as though my job is basically just to be the fisherman, fisherwoman pulling the net in and seeing what comes up. I think that sentiment gestures towards a rare humility, but I think that there is so much of you as well in the process of creation, your, your effort, your time, your crafting. And perhaps we could say that it's a collaboration between the writer and this larger spirit that we speak of, even when we don't quite know where our stories or our titles come from, because it had to be Black River, didn't it, Nilanjana? It had to be Black River, though. And I'll, I just want to add a little bit to that. I mean, obviously, Black River concerns the Yamuna, which was the Silver Grey River before she arrived at Delhi. And uh, she's been physically and emotionally as well polluted, you know, spiritually in a sense. I think because the city turned its back on the river, it's also paid a price for that, um, for that absence, that neglect. Uh, but other readers have seen it also as Black River, as in the tide of migrants who come into the city, you know, unnoticed and absorbed, and who actually make the city. That was a very strong part of the book for me. And uh, the other side of it is just the unknowable reaches of the human heart, you know, places where you can't go to and that where you don't even want to descend into until something terrible happens. I'd like us to go back to the beginning for just a moment. I couldn't help but notice that your novel opens with a chapter titled Blight. And the more I thought about it, the more convinced I became that you'd chosen that word very intentionally. So in our most common understanding, blight is a plant disease caused by fungi. And we see this relates directly to the sugarcane crops in Pitarpur's farmlands. But of course, it's more than that. It's a metaphor for all the evil and corruption and darkness that unfolds in the story. How hard did you have to work to build that sense of blight or to introduce that blightness, if you will, through the length of the book? Was it an exceedingly conscious effort? Was it something that, you, that came quite naturally to you? I'm more instinctual about my craft, you know. I'm, I'm not like... Um... Many writers think a lot more deeply about what they're going to use. But this was a word that floated up and settled. Uh, originally, that chapter was called Red Rot, you know, which is a disease that happens specifically to sugarcane. And uh, because, you know, that was the image that kept haunting me, um, pollution, and pollution of the kind where it's not the smog we're sitting in now in Delhi, but it's a kind of all-pervasive fog of hatred moving through, invisibly, through the body of a society until it engulfs people 
and changes them and changes their lineages. But there was something else, you know, I think a lot of us, Janice, you definitely are one of the writers who are in tune with the earth. Um, blight came to me instinctively because I sensed that what we were living in is a blighted world. And that word is particularly beautiful. It is mysterious, but it contains the seeds of light in it. I know that sounds sonorous, but it does. You know, so that's perhaps why we feel it so deeply. We feel that there's a light that's being blotted out. It's true. It's also rather biblical in its connotations. It is. You know, there's a sense of something that you brought upon yourself, something that is beyond being an act of God, as they say. Uh... And for me, it captured not the characters, but what many of my characters, Chand, Rabia, uh, Bacha, Mia, Rabia's husband, Khalid, you know, what they face as an everyday concern. They live in a world with a great deal of hope and a world that requires of them a kind of everyday commonplace strength and courage, you know, to live in a large city like Delhi without any of the privileges or comforts that uh, many in the writing community, including me, take for granted. You know, the insulation, there's a, there's a layer missing. And they live in that world that you might see from the outside as being blighted, but they are not the cause of the blight by any means. And I think when I was writing, uh, I remember this clearly, the first finished draft was in 2017. And at that time, I was writing into something that was not yet visible. You know, the, the strife between Hindus and Muslims, uh, Hindus persecuting Muslims, hadn't taken on as firm a form as it did later. But it was all there. It was all there. And I think, you know, as novelists, maybe there's some of us who are constantly facing in the other direction, despite the temptations of Twitter and the news. Um, I believe that there's no firm, you know, hard and fast way to be a novelist. But there are some of us who are deeply instinctual. And a lot of our work comes out of what we are feeling and sensing rather than what we can articulate. And for me, I know that words are the only way that I can actually get to, you know, words, writing, uh, everything that we talk about, the art and the craft of the novel. The only way I can get to some point of clarity is through writing. Until then, I don't even know what I'm looking at. Does that responsibility feel heavy, Nilanjana? Uh, not at all for me. My other job is as a columnist for the Financial Times. I look at the landscape of books and reading. And I think I understand uh, that by and large, it, it relieves you of your burden because you understand both that, yes, books and fiction are extremely powerful. Uh, they change the imagination. They can, at their best, bring about empathy. But you also see the other side of it. You know, books are often just treated as products in a marketplace. And uh, they're often also treated as irrelevant. That, in a way, takes the burden fully off my shoulders because I understand that writing is I start off you know knowing all right my writing is not going to change the world it's not going to stop you know the terrible war the genocides that are happening today but it might just be able to reach one reader somebody out there 
and help them or persuade them to see the world a little differently. It might open a window, that's all. That's actually the only response. So, you know, in terms of responsibility, um, I think the only two responsibilities that I take seriously is I have a fidelity to the truth of the story. And that was true when I was writing about cats. And it's true now that it's a more, you know, apparently serious human tale. Um, and I don't think I can allow my own outrage or my, you know, editorial feelings to intrude on the very real energy and the very real world of that story. And the second thing is I have a responsibility to try to get a book to be the best that I can get it to before I let it go. In terms of affecting the world, no. You know, we know that probably business or politics today or being an influencer or a celebrity, you know, if you want to affect millions of followers, there's so many other ways. But we don't have followers, do we, as writers? We are part of a community as writers. It's not just that we have readers, but we are readers ourselves. And that's different. You know, that's much more egalitarian. I'd really like for us to talk about voice, Nilanjana. I'd said this to you when I first read the book earlier this year, that it sounds and reads as though you've found a very particular voice in Black River, a voice that brings together many elements, a voice of wholeness. Is it a voice that emerged draft after draft, or is it a voice that fell magically onto the page? Also, is it a voice that feels most like your own? Okay, uh, in the recording, I'm going to take a two-second pause just to thump the window to get rid of the pigeons. Sorry. Okay, I'm done and uh, resuming. Um, that again is an acute question. Janice, in terms of getting people to see the city, and I hope not just Delhi, you know, I hope other cities, other rivers, other landscapes as well, you know, getting them to see that there's a relationship between our neglect of the world. Um, I'm going to go off on a small rant if you'll allow that. But we live as though we are disconnected from the earth. It's not just devices. It's somehow, you know, for historically, for many centuries now, I think we have lost that elemental connection, that sense of being part of the earth and just one species among many. And I'm not the only writer. I draw a great deal of uh, heart and strength from the fact that before me, there was someone like Amitav Ghosh. Uh, you know, there are scholars like Amita Bhaviskar. Your beautiful, beautiful book, Everything the Light Touches. Ten years ago, you were looking in that direction. You see what I mean? I think we all, again, this comes back to sensing and to feeling and allowing yourself to write about what seems most urgent to you. And the second part of it, you were asking about the voice in the book. I messed it up. The first draft that I wrote, because I don't come from the same world that Umbir, who's the policeman in the book, uh, Chand, who's a farmer who decides to go off to Delhi to see the world. He actually means to see the whole world. But he stops in Delhi and I think he just, you know, he's drawn in by this, the magic of this uh, really old and challenging and rough and brutal, but also 
welcoming metropolis, you know. He finds friends there. He finds a life and a meaning that he never expected. In order to do justice to that voice, I had to switch off even the journalist. You know, it's it's very humbling in a sense. You have to let the voices of people you are not, or whose lives you don't share, kind of pass through you. And you have to be in service to that voice. And then again, there's the complication of Umbi speaks a different kind of Hindi uh, from Khalid and Rabia, who learned their Hindi in the city and who basically are Bengali speakers. And not a hint of that translation can come through in English. It has to be natural. But the rhythms are different from if they'd been speaking and thinking in English, you know, because language shapes your imagination and experience as much as it shapes your vocabulary. I think it was literally only on the fourth draft that I felt that I was getting somewhere. And, uh, you know, Janice, I don't regret the amount of time it took. My uh, agent, David Godwin, was marvelous because he kept pushing me to do more, you know, to the point where I was just like, oh my God, I just want to let this go. And uh, we had a problem with the third draft, which was technically good. And David said, okay, here's the thing. You can put this out there into the world. But I think Chand has more to say and I think Ombir has more to say. And because of that, I stopped and it took another year and a half. But at the end of it, there's a sense of deep satisfaction that not having got it right in the shallow sense of receiving praise for a book, you know. But I just feel that now if there was an actual Chand or Arabia or Khalid, they would be able to read this book in front of me and I would not have to be embarrassed. I would not have to look at them and apologize and say, I'm sorry, I got you wrong. I got your world and your voice wrong. And it sounds strange, but, you know, you owe your characters so much. You create them and they are entirely dependent on what you decide they're going to be. But they haven't, fiction has its own reality. I insist on that. And the getting it right, it may seem like a hard grind, but there's also a joy to it, isn't there? You know, I live in this world. I live in a city that has a thousand voices, a million voices. And uh, I think I wanted to let the city breathe. You know, I wanted to have the city speaking through the people who know it so well in a way that's Absolutely different from my very South Delhi, Sundar Nasri, Nizamuddin's existence. Uh, what helped is that as a journalist, I'd spent a lot of time uh, just wandering around and over the years having conversations that were an, a writer's education. You know, the way you think uh, the lives of the poor or the homeless or migrants are is very different from the way people actually experience their lives. And there is no single category, you know. Um, you can't just say the poor, because everybody who has been pushed into poverty experiences that and fights against that different. Everyone who lives on the street, they don't all have the same stories. They are individuals, and they have their own internal worlds, and you want to be I read one of your interviews uh, where you said that one of the hardest parts of writing this book was overcoming your own privileges. 
um, because we are entering a world that is exceedingly different to the ones we inhabit. Um, how do you extend that sensitivity, uh, Nilanjana? How do you write about Chand, Ombir, um, Rabia, Khalid, migrants, farmers, policemen with authenticity and respect? I think there's two powerful factors at work out here. Uh, the first is that as a writer, you wouldn't be a writer if you weren't at some level completely in love with the world and curious about it, that, uh, if you know what I mean. And that takes you down unexpected routes that has you seen stories that are very different from your own class's way of seeing Betty, right? But at the same time, when it comes to the debates around who can write what, I jib at the idea that I own anybody's story, even a fictional character, you know. You can't just say, oh, I made them up, therefore. You see what I mean? Perhaps one of the reasons why it took so long, I, I was uncomfortable at the whole thing of, um, should I just stick with people from my own background? And when I got to that question, that answered part of it for me, which is that, no, I don't want to do that. I do want to write about uh, people who come from a very, you know, Bengali hybrid world at some point, maybe, and hopefully do justice to that as well. But I think, you know, when you are conscious of the fact that your enormous privilege is a cage and that your assumptions about people are likely to be wrong, when you walk in with a little more humility and you seek not to own but just to be the translator. I think that moment changes things and I wouldn't have had that experience if I hadn't spent a lot of time as a reporter on gender in places like UP and Haryana, where I think one of the first lessons I had to learn, and this was given to me by women, a lot of them like Rabia, is you have no idea what our lives are about. But if you shut up and if you're willing to listen, then we'll tell you and maybe you can try and imagine some of it. But I will say this, the hardest thing after a while was not class. You know, so long as I knew uh, intimately in detail where my characters came from and how, uh, a little trick, uh, what were they like when they were young? You know, Ombi before he became a policeman, what was he like at five? When I was confident, I knew that. And that even if I didn't understand it or it was very separate from my world, the world of a policeman in a border town on the edge of Delhi. Um, once you've spent enough time with research and conversations, you feel that, yes, you know, you've got under the skin of this particular person. But the hardest thing for me to write was actually, um, this is a book about parents and children. And, uh, you know, there are fathers and mothers and motherhood uh, running right through it. Rabia is a single mother, Chand is a single father. At some point, their, their love for their children is huge. And a key character in the book, one who's not, um, you know, who's not one of the good people, has a very troubled history, both as a child and uh, as a parent himself, I mean, as a non-parent himself. Um, so, you know, I was nervous about that because that's where my experience feels. I don't have children myself. And I think the big question I kept asking myself is, do I have a right as somebody who's never had children, to write about the grief of a parent who's been bereaved in the most horrible way. 
Um, I still don't know what the answers are. I think my instinct comes down more on you have the freedom to write. But with that freedom comes not a responsibility, but can you, you know, can you care for the world that you're writing about? You know, we talk about caring very little. And this goes beyond compassion. Compassion won't take you that far. But can do you have genuine empathy? Do you have respect? And in that respect, will you also allow people to be, you know, evil or contrary, contrary or as mixed up or confused as you and your friends undoubtedly are? There are no saints in my book. There are no out-and-out saints in your book and no out-and-out sinners. How do you find that balance, um, Nilanjana? How do you walk that tightrope of gritty, hard, dark, alongside love and beauty, tenderness and friendship? You know, Janice, this comes, this part of it comes from the journalist self. And to a certain extent from, um, I'm restless. And for years, I've, I get frustrated with Delhi in summer because I can't walk around that much because of the heat. But for years, you know, my Riyaz has really been just walking the city restlessly and walking uh, parts of it that um, are a little off the map, or at least off the social map. And everywhere you go, the sense of resilience that I feel or the tenderness that I'm sketching out here, all I can say is it exists in the real world and it would be wrong not to put that in. Um, you know, even with, um, I think we've all been preoccupied with the kind of violence that's happening in the world. But behind that, I also see the hands held out. I see the people who are bravely trying to do their jobs in the middle of a war zone, many who are mobilizing to help. And that part to me is not, you know, it's not, oh, there's a grimness and there must be hope as well. It's never an equal balance, right? But where there is resilience in the real world as well, I think that has to seep into the story. And uh, I still remember many years ago, I was doing a story on homeless women that I thought I would wrap uh, in a week. And you know, Janice, it ended up taking me three months. Because again, the women on the streets of Delhi insisted that if you want to know about us, then you can't just come in and talk to us and get you some whites and go out spend a night out here, go and meet that person. You know, by the time I was done, it had taken three months. And many people had come from devastation and were living at tremendous risk. It was emotionally one of the most difficult stories I'd ever written because, um, again, the children, the young girls, tended to disappear if they had no protectors. And you knew, you just knew that... Um, whatever fate they've gone to would have been terrible. But in the middle of that, there was laughter, there was companionship, there was friendship, there was wickedness and wicked humor, and there was life. And um, it sounds so corny when I say it, but it is absolutely real. And so all I'm doing is trying to put that in and, uh, you know, trying to get us away also maybe from a certain portrait of people who are oppressed or downtrodden as being permanently stern and lifeless and laughterless. I have lost count of the number of people I've met who, like Chand or like Khalid, might have their vulnerabilities, you know, might even crack 
under the strain of those. But like Rabia, something in them just says, no, you know, I'm not just going to endure. But in the cracks between, I will reach for love if it's there. And I will find a way to, you know, the songs are there for me as well as for anyone else. You have extensive experience as a journalist and you've mentioned a few times how the stories in this book take you back to that very familiar terrain, take you back to those journalist years and even to the heartbreak that you felt reporting all of those crimes against women and children. And yet because reportage and fiction are so different, although sometimes that's up for debate but for the purpose of this discussion we'll say that they are because they're so different i was wondering what your experience has been writing crime fiction after all of those years being a journalist it gave me a place not to put just my own frustration and heartbreak there was that you know i i think i'd seen after a while the map of uttar pradesh haryana and delhi for me was driven by um this is the place where the bodies of the young girls were brought out out of a lake. This is where, um, you know, the traffic children were taken and um, never seen again. I think, you know, that kind of heartbreak goes with the territory of being a journalist on gender or a, a policeman or anything of the sort. It's very common. I just wanted people to see that those lives are precious. They're actually... In the first part of the book, there are three connected crimes. You know, people tend to be struck by one and forget the other two. But one is the death of somebody who's considered expendable. And one has to do again with the harm done to children. And I think fiction allowed me to stay for a much longer time and to, you know, see something through rather than it wasn't just catharsis. I, I, I'm, I'm really not convinced that we are meant to write novels, you know, just to soothe our own feelings. But there was something there. I could see that, you know, these crimes were connected to something larger. And coming back to that sense of a blighted landscape. Again, I don't want to be sonorous about this, but crime fiction historically has been able to shine a light on communities and the way they live. And you see that there are very old poisons under the surface and something, you know, maybe a policeman's unwitting impulse for justice, maybe a woman's resilience in the face of people who want her to leave her homeland. You know, just that kind of not in your face, not up there being a courageous protester, but that kind of everyday pushback. At some level, I think I started to see... Um, I mean, I've told these stories often and I don't want to be disrespectful to the women and girls who died. But, you know, so often I've seen both sides. A few families, a lot of families in the hard-headed Indian way managed to move on from the death of a child, you know, who's being raped or murdered or just tortured and killed. Some never do. You recognize that even while this has fallen out of the newspapers, that loss echoes and echoes and it changes the family, it changes the village, it changes the community around them. And all I wanted to do in Black River very strongly and unconsciously was to get people to feel that, to get people to care just a little bit. 
because you know without caring janus there is nothing else until we care and learn to see maybe we don't change anything but it starts with seeing it starts with acknowledging it starts with being able to feel that grief and then start to count it up and instead of being exhausted just maybe say all right what is it in us that makes these lives so expendable that makes people an entire village turn away from an evil being done over and over again in its midst you know and as umbir says he's the cop in the book you know he, he says at one point uh, villages are just more open about what they do in cities they do this as well you know they hate and they segregate and they live apart from each other and they ostracize but they conceal it better i must admit umbir is one of my favorite characters in your book and i was wondering how you managed to craft him in this terribly authentic way uh, given that you know the hard-boiled uh, world-weary yet gentle-hearted cop is such a visible figure in so many other crime stories how did you steer away from clichés how did you make such a familiar character new and his own person i think by treating him as his own person instead of as a you know prototypical policeman he shaded a little more towards the light than uh, many actual policemen are but i've spent a fair amount of time with constables and uh, with inspectors you know just after a while once trust is gained people will talk a little bit and uh, he's not you know he's not particularly noble i mean his feet hurt he's okay with corruption up to a certain point but somewhere dimly he has something that i've seen in policemen as well um there's a dim sense of he didn't join the force just for the salary maybe somewhere justice yeah you know maybe somewhere well most constables don't get much in the way of promotions you know maybe twice in a career or something but um, there's the possibility there's the vague sense that justice you know is floating in the air and uh, i think a lot of the way that we write about the police is either you know there's the noble cop or there's the bad cop you know the terrifying cop but we very rarely see the police as uh, just an index of whether a particular society is doing well or not you know i've seen the indian police my father was in government not in the police but through him and his friends i got a view of the police over uh, the years and it seemed to me that when uh, the health of the community was fairly stable your police forces could shine and you know when people talk about police brutality of which we've seen a lot in this day and age it almost always signals a parallel coarsening you know it comes out from that coarsening and darkness in the wider community it's not disconnected it's not just you know political corruption there is something deeper at uh, play but in the middle of that you'll also find men like umbir who are almost you know against their will and against their best interests they can't help but find themselves doing the right thing 
and they often grumble about it by the way you know umbir is not based on any one person but every now and then i'd come across a genuinely uh, decent uh, policeman and almost always they would grumble about the fact that you know it was such a pain in the neck to have to have something like a conscience it was inconvenient they would rather not have been burdened with that you call yourself an imaginative writer and i of course wholeheartedly agree to imagine is to picture and i was wondering whether this is where a book begins for you with an image an image so powerful that it just doesn't let you go is this where black river began with a picture of munya or of chand in his fields or of delhi or of the black river herself that's why is again janis you know for a lot of us we call ourselves writers and we work with words but the first element to anything i've ever worked on in the way of fiction and fiction is something and i came to date you know i wrote the wildings and the hundred names of darkness only in my late 30s and uh, then went off and did a lot of things and black river is the first novel i've written in a decade pretty much but um, it happens with something very clear and very sharp in your mind i the images that i saw first were you know very light uh, i saw chand though i didn't know his name then looking down at the ito bridge and i knew somehow without being told that he was looking down at that mass of people in delhi you know rushing past and he was feeling not just the excitement but you know that whole dizzying feeling when you've come from a quieter place of breathing the air that a thousand souls with a thousand dreams have breathed in and out and a feeling that maybe your dream might be one of those to splatter into a reality you know i saw that i saw bachamia in his shop and i saw rabia at the yamuna almost uh, simultaneously within days of each other i didn't know how they were connected and uh, the last thing that i saw which i couldn't make sense of for ages was it was an absence i didn't see the girl hanging from the branches of the tree i just saw the tree the jamun tree itself outside what was chan's hut and a powerful you know sense of grief and loss and somebody missing from the landscape so yes you know when it comes to you it's all muddied and muddled and you know god knows where those images are swirling up from i think like a lot of writers i i use photographs a lot when i'm just walking around the city and uh, the research the conversations all of that they help but at some point you know you have to let go of whatever you think of as the real world and that's when your imagination if it's well fed it takes over and always what it comes brings to me is first uh, not just images but you know it's not quite like seeing a movie it's like looking off into the middle distance and seeing a world their world you know right beyond the horizon of your computer and then you try to make sense of that and uh find the words and does walking help you bring these worlds to life does walking allow you to inhabit those landscapes in a particular way and 
help you transform um, that space into words. Because you've also said that you like following your feet a lot. Um, so does that mean you like to do your research close to the ground? Yeah, but there's something about being on foot that changes everything. I think the first part of it is that it takes you away from your phone and the, I spend too much time on Twitter. You know, it's, it's dreadful. Um, but it takes you away also, you know, from just uh, the chained world, right? You know, where you're talking about something but ne- never getting around to do it. And walking in Delhi particularly, um, I'm sure you felt the same, Janice, because you know Delhi well. Um, it engages all of your attention. If you want to be safe, you know, and not stupid, then uh, you have to have your data up. Your instincts are firing uh, really sharply and your senses are on full alert in both a good and a, you know, not so good way. And so in that moment, I think you're deeply alive. And by alive, I mean you're aware of yourself as a body, but you're also very attuned to the world around you. And walking is a great leveler. Um, I'm sure that if I'd driven up in my car to the banks of the Yamuna, you know, and been escorted around, I'm sorry, two-second pause, I'm going to thump for the pigeons again. Okay, I'm done. You can edit that out as well. Okay, so getting back to it, I'm sure every writer has their process and I know writers who are fabulous but whose idea of hell would be, you know, going for walks in the mountains and all of that because they're such city people, right? And for them, maybe it's the cafes, maybe it's the sitting around in nightclubs, maybe it's being surrounded by people that's their adrenaline, you know. Um, For me, something different happens when I'm walking, you know. All the theory, all the things you're worrying about, has this chapter come together, uh, is the plot working, that goes away and you come up with solutions when you're on your feet. I don't know what I would do actually, you know, in the months that I write the least are the summer months when I can't walk. Something happens, my imagination, my writing mind just folds up. It, It doesn't function. I so agree with you. I think that walking allows you to be immersed in the world in a way that nothing else really does. Placing step after step on the earth conjures this really intimate connection between you and the world. And this is something that I've noticed in all your books, Nilanjana, this connection to the larger living natural world. Much has been made, I know, um, about this shift from your earlier two novels, Wildings and Hundred Moons of Darkness, to Black River, you know, from fantasy to crime fiction. But I like to think in continuities. I think similar spirits haunt all your books. And I think one of these spirits is a deep awareness of the natural world. You know, Wildings opens with bats and cats and cheels and the little brown mouse. Um, Hundred Names opens with the flight of an egret and a hunt. Um, In Black River, we have Munya in the wild. Um, And there are the Mehendi bushes and marigolds. So your prose is interwoven with details of um, the larger world 
around you, the larger living world around you. And I'd like to know where this delight comes from, this joy, this love, and how do you keep it alive in a place like Delhi? I wish I was somebody who knew more about it. There are writers who, you know, like yourself or like Aarti Kumar Rao, who have taken the time to train themselves into knowing the names of things, into being able to name that world fully. I still remember Aarti coming back from the uh, from the Rajasthan desert. You know, her face illuminated by the knowledge that the villagers' understanding of the sky was such that they had fifty names for clouds, for different kinds of clouds. You know, another twenty-five for different kinds of winds, and the names are not just names, right? With that, you're not just claiming something; you're building a relationship. And uh, for me, I'm a, I'm an amateur and a dilettante in this world. I don't know very much, but all my life, I think I felt most myself when I'm up in the mountains or in Delhi. When instinctively in a city, whether it's Delhi or New York or London. some compass internally just sends me to the wild places you know and uh, i think that's human not not to do with me a lot of us just have that it's just that we keep suppressing that urge in my 20s if you talk to me about the natural world i would have said then when the bushman the bushman cares right so but my 30s and 40s for this to start to grow on me and it was really the cats who brought that alive to me You know, because you're looking at them playing, and you're thinking, "Oh, is that a people tree?" No, that's a neem tree, and that's how bad I was. I couldn't tell about people and me. But over the years, I think my deepest pleasures have come from that interaction. It shapes us one way or the other. You know, even even the smallest of things, a a garden uh, upstairs on a terrace. Uh, the silk cotton flowers, as you mentioned, right now the shop to put me outside my writing window, is just about unfurling into bloom, and the scent from it is delicate now. And in two days or three days, it will be heavy and heady, and you know it'll almost make your head spin. And that's when the Christmas cold will come in, and that's the scent of winter. So I think you know. my journey has been slowly and clumsily towards this return to nature not as a pretty landscape or as you know forest walking is something that will heal your spirit and then you can go back to your city you know and more i've just started to notice something so basic jadas that i've been ridiculous saying it which is that uh, we are of this earth you know and in this one lifetime um oh no one knows how much time they have left on the earth but i hope i'll have another three decades two decades whatever it is i think i do want to pay attention to the rest of the world not just the human part of it the more than human more than human and yet um, you know when you take your proper place in in that world you feel it don't you i mean in everything the light touches their people who are who either obsessed with the natural world or who see its beauty but who just want to extract something from it and the relationship that we are guided towards most is either um, extractive or it's delight but delight only with a tamed version of the natural world 
a defanged version without any snakes or thorn bushes or whatever. Uh, when I was walking around um, some of the villages that became the model for Titarpur, what I realized is that, you know, the villagers have a different relationship. They often can't name bushes and trees and they're not interested. But they are very alive to the leopard in that part of the Rabini Hills comes here every two months during the full moon. You know that much? You understand what I mean? Or if the wind in the trees bends, if the wind in the trees bends, uh, makes the trees bend in this way, then we'll have severe storms, rainstorms um, this monsoon. It's about being able to read the world. It is, really. And I think because of Khaled, most of all, he's a gentle character in the book, but he's somebody who's very unsuited for the cut and thrust of Delhi life. And it was because Khaled fell in love with a young man, you know. Um, he found solace and comfort there in something that he was reaching for. And you know, Janice, I genuinely believe that this is something that many of us as humans are actually deeply seeking. You know, there's an emptiness in us that we keep trying to fill with possessions or with status or celebrity. And uh, I remember a friend of mine uh, who was pretty bright about this, who, you know, whenever one of us would uh, whine about how our lives were terrible and we were going through this crisis or that disappointment in love, would just say, you know, go out and garden. You know, just touch the earth, do something, grow something, tend something. Learn to care. It shifts something in you deeply, for sure. It does. It also makes you realize that, uh, you know, nature's, like I said, it's not a pretty screensaver. It's pretty harsh. It's pretty... Uh, when I walk around the neighborhood, sometimes you see things like a beautiful golden bat that's, you know, being killed by crows. Uh, alongside uh, the kittens playing in the sunlight outside the post office. <laughs> you see? All of the beauty of the cruelty both together. Both together, both together. This brings me to the last question, though I wish this could go on and on, Nalanjana. Um, but, you know, sometimes we have an idea of what kind of writer we are. You know, what kind of stories we want to tell or, you know, what kind of books we write or what books we will go on to write. And I was wondering whether writing or working on Black River sort of disrupted that idea of yourself as that kind of, or a certain kind of a writer that you had in your head. Did it challenge you in a, in a way that you didn't expect? Did it transform you in a way that you didn't expect? Janice, that's another all too astute question. Um, honestly, even though I've spent most of my life writing one way or the other, you know, it's a columnist, an editor, a journalist. I never seen myself as a writer, even after The Wildings and Hundred Names of Darkness, which I loved writing. And again, I was touched by the way people took them to their hearts. But I don't think I ever said to myself, I am a writer, I'm this kind of writer. I wanted to write and I've always written, you know, whether it's journals or poems. Black River changed me. And I don't yet know what direction that change will take me into. Um, despite the fact that I've done a lot of public speaking, I'm, I'm kind of shy and I don't really like uh, 
myself being out into the world, in the world. You know, I'd rather my books were there, not me. But it ruins something. You know, there's a power to writing and there's also a carving. It's elemental. That river shapes you. And uh, you can't do much about it. I feel that I'm a sentimental writer at heart, you know. The person who's just standing there saying, why can't everybody be nice to each other? <laughs> I know that there's something about injustice that bothers me. I, I'm guessing that maybe part of my subject is the overlooked. Um, all those who live in a city, you know, belonging to it, but who are pushed to the margins in some way or the other. And, you know, whether it's cats or humans, uh, their lives are so rich and so, you know, so layered and so beautiful despite all the challenges. I don't yet know what kind of writer I'm going to be. I'm still, I'm still uncomfortable thinking of myself as a writer even though I'm working on the next book. Give it another two books and maybe I know. You know, but, but that's the thing about writing Janice. It brings... You know, in this rushing world where we encourage to live moment by moment, responding only to what's happened that day, posting something on Instagram, all of that. I think writing changes you in the right direction. It makes you stop. It makes you pause. It makes you go deep. And uh, whatever I've given to writing is nothing compared to what it's given to me. So yeah, yeah, you know, an awkward thing, but being... Shit. <laughs> and do you feel that this experience is something that you're carrying in a very particular way towards your next book, towards whatever you're working on next? Has it made you open to certain uh, stories that you may not have, have been thinking about before? Has, has Black River really shaped the book that you're going to write next? That one, for sure. But it's also, uh, that one again, uh, I don't want to say too much about it, but it's set in the same, uh, not the same, uh, the same world as the Yamuna and Tetherpur. But some elements from Black River carry over, and that again is about a different kind of inequality, a different kind of corruption. Uh, I can say that safely because I'm almost at the end of it. I think, you know, somewhere I'm... I'm still asking myself, what, what does justice really feel like? You know, what does it mean um, in a world where so much has corroded? And yet, you know, where it stands there with its bright promise. And, but beyond that, I think now that I'm coming to the end of the second draft of the next book, there's something else emerging, you know, in the far distance. And I'm excited about that as well, which is the next book after the next book. That's what writing is like, Janice, you know. I'm a late starter, but I love writing so much. And, you know, so often, Janice, what I've loved about this conversation is that typically, with, as with you, you go to the heart of what it means to write and read and experience. And you don't ask that much about writing as a career, which is the way it's sold to us. And I think the last thing I want to say is that as readers and writers, it's not that we fall in love with just the word and the books. You know, there's something life-giving about the act of writing itself. And in the most uh, 
selfish way, maybe I just want more and more of that. You know, that's what I want to do with the rest of my life, aside from walking and eating a lot of chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> I think eating lots of chocolate is a wonderful note to end on. Nilanjana, thank you so much. It's been an utter delight to be in conversation with you. This was Books I Love, where Kitty and I were in conversation with Nilanjana Roy on her most recent novel, Black River. Thank you so much for joining us and keep an eye out and an ear out for our next episode.